Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. This episode, like many in this series, is about political leadership. Shama Tatler is the cabinet lead for housing and regeneration for Brent Council. If you are a built environment practitioner, you're a planner, you're a politician, local or national, you'll enjoy this podcast. You'll grab the policy debates quickly and you'll be taking notes throughout. If you're a lay person, this podcast gives you an insight into what's a mess. London is in. You'll hear about the lack of industrial land in London, the lack of office space in London, and of course, the lack of housing. And crucially, you'll hear about just how hard it is to get anything built, despite the huge economic incentives to do so. Fundamentally, in a country as centralised as ours, we will need reform from Westminster and Whitehall to fix the state that we're in. But Shamas shows what good work can be done at a local level and also shows the mindsets that our national leaders need to embrace. Here is Shama Tatla on the Stepping Out of Line podcast. I hope you enjoy. Today's guest is Shama Tatla, a Labour councillor and the cabinet member for regeneration, planning and growth for Brent Council in Greater London. Shama, welcome. My first question is, you have been a councillor in Brent for nearly a decade and have been a cabinet lead for regeneration for most of your time in office. I wanted to understand what you felt was the hardest part of your job as a councillor and the toughest part of your role as a cabinet lead for Regent? Um, yes, that's a really good question. I've not often been asked what's the hardest part. I often get asked what the easiest part of the role is, and that, that, yeah, that's easy, you know, seeing families move into new homes. I think the most difficult of the role is around our existing communities and assuring them and reassuring them that the change that they're going to see as a result of the policy decisions that I'm taking or the cabinet taking or the administration is taking is going to be something that in the long term will be beneficial for them and their families. And and often laying people's fears is a very emotionally charged conversation because people don't often look at the facts or the statistics or the need. They just see what what what's impacting them around them. And so a lot of built environment changes can be, can, can be unnerving, particularly post-COVID when people didn't have as much control over their lives and they're seeing things rapidly change. And we do things in Brent that, and we, we, are, we are known for our pace of delivery. And you know, I'm impatient for delivery and my team are set up to gear, you know, and all our processes are geared to making sure that we enable delivery as quickly as, and, you know, quickly as possible that conversation about how we gear and support residents in that change is often the hardest part. The toughest part, um, I think, is often the relationship with Westminster um, and getting them to understand the kind of nuances and the difficulties within the planning process, within funding and grant system for the for councils for their own direct build. Um, and the lack of, I think, long-term strategic thinking in the time that I've been Regen Lee, there hasn't been a real strategic approach to housing by any of the DLAC or shadow, you know, shadow mini- uh, cabinet ministers, I should say, about how we solve the housing crisis. Obviously, we want the housing targets, and I'm a big believer in the housing targets, but that needs to come with legislative and reform in the in the in the system to enable that to happen. Um, and the, and there's lack of joint up thinking about infrastructure. 
And that's the other incredibly frustrating thing in my role, that I'm not responsible, the council's not responsible for delivery of infrastructure that supports housing often. So we could secure a medical centre in planning, which we do, you know, regularly, but then it takes a good few years for the NHS, the state's team, or to be able to afford to be in a place where they can deliver the medical centre um, and or whether it's, you know, transport or whether it's school, it, it's a moving feat and I find incredibly frustrating. Everyone talks about this need, but there is no strategic thinking from government to enable it to happen locally. Mm, I guess because you have so many different strands to your role. There's obviously the public facing role of dealing with communities that are being impacted by development or proposed developments. And Brent, I'm sure we'll go on to discuss, has been transformed over the last decade. The skyline looks completely different. I live across the other side of London, but I'm a big football fan. So I go to Wembley Mm -hmm. occasionally for special occasions. And every time I go back every few years for maybe a concert or, or a football game, it looks completely different. And there's new there's new towers up. And so working with the community and explaining why that development needs to take place and what they want to see from a development is one role. And then I guess as a cabinet lead, you have a strategic role working with large developers and planning and negotiating what you want to see in your area. And then there's that other role, I guess, lobbying central government or the GLA saying we need this, which is actually aspects of the role that I hadn't really considered. And it would be interesting to hear from you what impact, in a bit more detail actually, what impact of that lack of coordination and lack of strategic thinking have in the long term. Because when I was a councillor and when I was doing consultation events with the community, a classic would be this area cannot take more uh, housing because the train line is already so sold up and rush out, or there are no GP places in the area. And it felt to reject new housing on those grounds was to worsen the housing crisis because of the crisis in our NHS. But actually, those concerns are really legitimate. And I never quite found a way to juggle those two priorities and find an outcome that was satisfying when I was pushed on it. And I would love to hear how you answer those questions in a a heated kind of community meeting. And then in a backroom level, what are you doing to try and make the process a bit better? Well, I think I can answer them, those both questions in a a combined way. Um, When I took on the brief, one of the things that I was really adamant that we we did was how we do community engagement before the planning process even kicks in. And we've geared our planning policy team, our regeneration teams to look at how we talk to residents and bring residents on the journey with us before there's even a formal planning application for any scheme coming forward. So our local plan reflects that. So we adopted our local plan uh, last year in February 22, and that was three or four years worth of work really engaging with residents across the borough to the point where we leaflet dropped every household in the borough and had hundreds of people turn up to workshops and, and getting to really think about, you know, giving them, giving, giving residents bare facts. This is our housing need. This is our, these are demographics of our community. This is what the land looks like. You know, this is what's protected as metropolitan open land. This is what, you know, how many GP surgeries you've got, et cetera, et cetera. And getting them to see, well, actually, where would they like to see things come forward? Where would they like to see things protected? And so that conversation evolved and grew. And from that local plan, we are now embarking on a series of master plans or supplementary planning documents that have that similar process. So we've got one for Church End, one for Neasden that we've just both adopted. And the Church End one in particular is one of our most deprived areas, sits between Stonebridge and Harleston. 
uh, my region and policy teams work for two years engaging with the community about what is it that they want to see in church end. And overwhelmingly, residents wanted to see investment in the area. They wanted to see regeneration in the area. And this is either from cohorts and communities that don't necessarily always talk to us, or talk, but we went, mainly make the point to go to them, go to their high streets, go to their businesses, go to, you know, their places of worship and understand what is it that they want. They want opportunity for their families. You know, they want to know that we're, you know, that their 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 children's lives are going to be better than theirs, their own. Doing that means that you're able to then assure and give confidence to residents that we're thinking about, you know, youth centres or medical centres or you know, transport connectivity, you know, cycle lanes, all the rest of it, so that so that they know that we've embedded it in our planning policy. And then we we expect our developers to do the same. So when they come to us with a planning scheme, we expect them to have, even before the pre-application process, start work on engagement processes with our communities to say this is what's going to be the benefit. We've been really successful in collecting the community infrastructure levy um, that all development you know, brings, unless it's, unless it's a social housing. But a portion of that, 15% of it, has to go to neighborhood infrastructure projects. So one of the key things that I say to the team is that if, you know, when we distribute that money and we have a whole process around where community groups, residents groups applying, that we've got to remind residents that this money is coming from development, it's coming from generation, and it's about expanding opportunities and, and, and connecting them to what's happening. So, and it's not to say that everything's perfect and every, everyone's going to be pleased, but that's the approach that we take. You, you never get away from, I suppose, difficult conversations with residents about them not seeing the need for this development here. And my argument is will always be, so long as there is a housing crisis, so long as there is a housing need, Brent will do its role and play its part in delivering housing supply. Everything else, if it's a site allocation, there will be housing on that site. But things to mitigate some of their concerns, whether it's parking, whether it's transport connectivity, whether it's amenities and so on, even things like trees, I can say to I say, look, I can say to my planning officers, can we make sure that we're mitigating and securing those things as part of the planning process? I don't want the development to be stopped. I want the housing to come forward. And that's the same line that we take with developers. You know, we have our red lines about what we expect on each scheme. And if they're met and they follow policy, there shouldn't be a reason why that's not, 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 not given permission. And there'll be people who will inevitably never be happy, but my personal view is that I'm in this role. I don't know how long I'm going to be elected for. So I have to be take the opportunity to do what I can now for the next for the next generations coming through. My daughter's 14, you know, and I want her to be able to say there's enough housing supply that she can have the choice either renting or buying by the time she's in her mid-20s in Brent. Yes. It's utterly scandalous. When you're, I think I read somewhere yesterday. In 1990, a quarter of under 35s had bought their home or had a mortgage. We're now at like in single figures in that percentage scheme. I just think we need to be doing, you know, we need to be having conversations in reality about not being so short-termist. Mm. No, I... I... I completely, I completely agree. Currently, the whole system is geared to very few people engage in the planning system, and if they ever engage in the planning system, it's at the final stage when they want to stop a neighbour's extension or stop a tower block at the end of their road, and that kind of leads to the neighbourhood battles that we have, and because it comes down to councillors to make that final decision. You're always going to get political juggling with councillors, no matter what. And that just adds a whole nother level of insecurity in the system. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself getting frustrated, as I did when I was a councillor, with how, <laughs> how the process went? Yes and no, in that I suppose it all boils down to political leadership, I think. And I've been very clear with my planning officers and as as the leader that, you know, we have a a moral duty to support housing. Um, And so our officers, um, and I've been very lucky, we we have some of the best planning officers in the region, officers um, 
in the country. And they have geared and changed the process within Flint, within the within the parameters of what you can do in the planning system to make sure that residents feel heard. And then that what they're saying to us is then incorporated and actually developers are saying, okay, well, we're hearing what residents are saying. We will try and we will look at how we can mitigate some of their concerns. So one of the things that we, a few of the things that we've done as a result of some of those frustrations were, you know, my, my, my bugbear is you go through all that pain and hard work and to get a local planning place. And yet still when a development is policy compliant, it can still be refused. And that is something I don't want. So we have a, a process in Brent where the committee only hear strategic applications or anything over 10 units comes to the committee nothing small everything else delegated to officers unless there's a certain level of objection but our threshold's quite high secondly we expect developers to go through a pre-app process so there'll be a presentation to committee in the pre-app stage uh, even before it goes to the formal planning process and there'll be questions then about how much they've engaged with the community what changes have been made as a result of their engagement with the community around there and then expectations that during the formal process is a sort of feedback mechanism. The residents can see that there's been change as a result of what they've asked for or what they've, what they've raised. And I often say to my backbenchers, if it's a particular development that's difficult, then I will front up any difficult meetings. And you know, I am the cabinet lead. I will front up any difficult meetings. I'm, I'm happy to do so. And, and, that, and that's really, really helped the way things go. And then finally with... The actual planning committee, we don't take things in Brent to committee unless there is a recommendation for approval. So we will work with the application to get it to a point where actually officers are confident, our legal team is confident that it's the best application it can be and therefore it will be recommended for approval. Now our planning committee as well are very well geared up, our chair, our vice chair, are very good at understanding that planning committee is often a window or a theatre you like of the, the front end of planning. Most residents don't see anything or don't engage themselves with planning the planning process until it really affects them. So they will ask all the questions that residents are wanting to be heard or kind of and thrashed through it all. But nine times out of ten, unless it's something really, really crunch, like there's not enough, like a scheme hasn't bought affordable housing on the, on the site when actually they could have done, it will it will be approved because it's actually the everything's been debated and robustly scrutinized by planning officers and by the committee and commit if committee are uh, satisfied they will they will pass it through particularly if it's a site allocation they've met every policy and there is not there are no grounds to to um to refuse it as difficult as those conversations can be and emotive as those conversations can be oh yeah absolutely occasionally a planning committee will go viral yeah i think i saw one with someone throwing a chair or something or other. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I have in, have in mind. And I might, I might put that in the show notes so the listeners can, can enjoy that later on. But just to give it, just to show councillors, actually the pressure they're off the, often under. There is political pressure, particularly if a scheme is in your ward that has a lot of anti-voices. It, it's a huge amount of political pressure on what is meant to be a quasi-judicial role and a way that I've found that counsellors cope with that and manage that is actually in the way that you just explained it's to show the public that all the right questions are being asked exactly, and do that in a very public way it's almost like a piece of theatre as in these questions have been asked of the developer Previously, the the planning officers have gone through the detail, but let's like kind of go over them again and show the public what has happened behind the scenes now happening in front of you. We'll go over it again. But I once got in trouble for describing the process as a charade, when actually probably what I was trying to say suggest was it's a piece of theatre. Yeah, I think exactly that, and I think there's an element of the public need to see accountability, public accountability from its democratic elected local leaders. And planning committee can do that. You know, we, we do that at all other all committees at the council where 
the aims might be already in the report, but actually it needs to be verbalized as well. You know, the, the, the councillors need to ask those questions to satisfy themselves that everything's been thoroughly scrutinized and inter- in, you know, interrogated, in, 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 investigated to make sure that it, it, it's as best as it can be. And I think my, my frustration often with that element of the process is we know we're we're a strong Labour council. You know, we are, we have the entire committee is Labour bar one, who is our opposition uh, councillor, who guaranteed every committee votes against the scheme, regardless of whether it means planning policy or not. Because you know there isn't enough of a supermarket down the road, and where people, I mean, the really spurious reasons as to why it's opposed and guaranteed every committee that councillor votes against something and it's playing into that NIMBY I suppose role um, where the administration has responsibilities has to follow kind of policy requirements but there is an element of the opposition being able to play politics or play that opposition card campaigning element to say well look at you know, look at Brent Labour they're, they're allowing all this to happen but actually fact, if you go back and watch our committee Every question has been answered that people are worried about, and the mitigations often, or it's not what they thought it was, and therefore it actually the reality is this. You know, it, 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 we've been successful. We had the highest new homes bonus this year in the country, and I'm I am not ashamed to stand by that because we need housing. <laughs> it is interesting because planning could be so localized each local authority has its own slightly different flavor and different political dynamics and and different culture that comes from political leadership so if in brent you have political leadership that is constantly making the case of the importance of growth and development that filters down to that bench council and you kind of all kind of pull together usually if you're in the same political group if it's not much of mostly, but if there's not that political leadership, then actually that that drive. Okay, this is something that we strategically all support. Isn't quite there. You get a bit more kind of people going off and doing their own things. But when you kind of move maybe further out into Greater London, and there are much more mixed authorities, I've heard stories of. Certain local authorities where a proposal will come, and you know before the meeting, every Labour councillor will vote in favour of the proposal, and every Conservative councillor will vote against. And you just kind of think, this is not how the process is meant to be. And it goes, it makes a mockery of the whole what planning, what our planning system strives to be, but this is what it's become. I think it. It's also very interesting to see where the different political parties are in regards to housing and how they solve the housing crisis. I think Labour are much more open to the notion that we need to be house building than they have, I think, it's ever been publicly said. And I'm really pleased to see Lisa Mandy and Matthew Pennycook really take on the charge about how we have a grown-up conversation about stuff. I think the key thing in Labour will always be social housing, council housing versus the wider 10 years other housing stuff, other, other types of housing stuff. That's where some of the tension may come from within the Labour group, Labour Party. I think within the Conservatives, they are much more divided completely. If you look at Harrow, which is now a Conservative council, they are very much like, we're not developing anything. We're not building anything. Now, I look over to our neighbours in Harrow and think, you've got so much land. You could be doing so much more, you know, and it'd be beneficial for you to, to, to be able to enable building. But they've already, I think the Tories have already come out in Harrow and said they're not building. And then you see that playing out at a national level where you've got Theresa Villiers versus other Tory MPs who are completely at odd ends about housing supply. Um, you know, and, and, and I was extremely uh, shocked, I suppose, or not shocked, probably just the Theresa Villiers interview at the Times about how she's never met anybody who has an issue with housing. I'm like, you're a London MP. How is it that you don't know there is a housing crisis? You know, it, I, in Chipping Barnet, there is housing. I know the housing needs there are massive. And Barnet Labour, who now run the council, are going to be really proactive in making sure that they, they deliver good schemes. Liberal Democrats are very, um, again, the national rhetoric versus what they do locally is extremely interesting. 
So when the Democrats are running the council, they're building, you know, the South West London boroughs, you know, some of the ones in Hertfordshire, they're actively building housing. But then when they're in opposition, they are actively anti-development and, and, and ha- using that as a way to kind of gain political support. And similarly with the Greens, where you have the Greens talk about the support for council housing, yet when councils are building council homes on council land, there's a huge campaign against it. I just, and it's again at odds with what they're saying nationally. And I saw the debate the other night at Parliament on housing supply, and there was some cross-party consensus about, you know, having a mature conversation about housing supply. I just hope that that translates eventually to local levels and local councils. So I do work with a local government association uh, and, I, and I, I meet lots of councillors from other councils outside of London, districts, unitaries, counties, you know, and so on. And there is a huge nervousness about planning and housing delivery. Everyone knows there's a need, but the politics around securing votes because it, people might not vote for you because you're allowing this development to take place. My response to that sometimes is, well, the people moving into those homes are going to be your voters too. And actually, that particular point I was going to bring up because I think the attitude in places like Croydon or Bromley or Harrow from the Conservatives, they know that demographic tide is, broadly speaking, moving away from them and maybe less so with Harrow but particularly in South London as those develop as those areas get more diverse they might become more labor if they are building more new build flats and young professionals are moving in they're likely to be more labor and it's a desperate digging the trenches of self-preservation on a local level this is how we cling into power. On a national level, there are some more far-sighted conservatives who realised that one of the fundamental reasons why they cannot win any votes from anyone under the age of 40 and are struggling from voters under the age of 50 across the board is because they have failed over 13 years to tackle the housing crisis to save their own skin long term, they really need to get their get themselves in gear. So the conservatives, you can see that clear clearly why they're so split. Like I'm I'm in my forties. I was able to buy a home in the two thousands, um sorry, two thousand and six, seven. I was in my twenties. You know, a little bit of support with my dad from my dad in the Midlands. I was living there at the time. I'm born by Londoner, but I was living in the Midlands for a few years. And I think I am the last generation, potentially, of having that ability to buy a currently anyway with the way the climate is. And the conservative move away, traditionally they've always been the, the party of home ownership and we've been the party of council housing, which is, you know, I'm really extremely proud of and that will always be a priority. But I also think, you know, under New Labour, we talked about, you know, aspiration and home ownership and giving opportunities for people, you know, who did the right thing. They did well at school, they went to university or they got a career. And then why not own their own home? And that path isn't open to them. And the fact that the conservatives are not talking about that tells me that actually they don't have any ideas about how they're going to square that circle. And this is why it gives me confidence that the Arab Shadow team and Labour are actually confronting those issues and talking about them. You know, and and actually t- telling the electorate, we actually do want to see and talk about how Labour can be, you know, once again seen as a party of aspiration and not just the party that we come in and try and save people. Because you know, Labour should be about helping people move up and move on. You do find a lot of pragmatism from councillors, particularly those who have a, a cabinet role or a kind of more strategic overview. They understand the need and understand the trade-offs. 
I do sometimes get frustrated with members of parliament who have less skin in the game in that they are not there with housing targets or they used to be there but on their back and needing to deliver and show that they've delivered who say oh oh no I, I don't I don't like this scheme I've had a few emails against it it's particularly unhelpful but on some of the controversial aspects the classic one would be tower blocks now I hold my hands up and say I don't really like tower blocks like I, I find them often a bit overbearing I would personally like to choose to, to live in one but our current planning system and and how it's configured means that the ideal land for development are large areas of low density land with relatively simple ownership so a classic being like an out-of-town shopping mall or, or a wix or a home base or a hard part where where ownership is limited and the opposite would be a row of terraced houses where the ownership is very complex and it'd be incredibly difficult to buy the entire row and redevelop which means in reality the land the brownfield land available to develop in london is quite minimal really i'm i'm i'm, so, I'm getting kind of sense of dread that actually the land available left in inner London is reducing and reducing and reducing. Brownville land or or, um, or will be the London plan or or the mayor's office designate as strategic industrial land is protected in the same way the Greenbelt protected. It's got a huge protection on it. And so boroughs like mine have to, we've been instructed through our London land process that not only will we put a really high housing target, but we've also now also got target about intensifying and in- enhancing the capacity for industrial land because we've lost so much industrial land and that's the other point that i think it's so easy to say oh build on brownfield yeah of course build on brownfield but we still need industry we still need jobs we still need to be able to you know kind of ha- have that functioning element of, of in society so how do we do that and so there, there are two ways and this is this is this is i i I mean, here they're on towers. I, 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 I can see the appeal. I would have probably lived in one and wanted to live in, the, in one when I was when I first graduated, and I probably still would today. You know, some of the quality that we've seen built is fantastic, and actually, it's low maintenance, it's easy. You know, there's a sense of community already in the block. I understand that. Um, so, but I suppose there's a there is a balance to be struck here about land use in the country. So, if we want to pursue housing that's low rise. Then we have to accept that we're going to have to build on green green land, right? On, on, on open space. If we are saying that we don't want to build on those green spaces and we want to protect them, then we have to accept there's going to be density in, in height in places like London and our big cities and even our towns and around transport nodes. My personal view is, and, I, and I've written this uh, for the Fabians on, on a housing booklet, there needs to be a land use audit across the a national land use audit. And, and I'm glad Keir started talking about looking at the green belt because actually there are parts of the green belt that we all know that aren't green, that aren't of ecological value and actually is restricting stuff. Whereas parts that are, are actually green of value are open for development. My personal view is we need to have a land use audit that looks at where we need housing, where we need industry, where we need green space that needs to be protected, where we need agriculture and where we need infrastructure. I really have a land, like a national audit about what land is needed where and how we release that land. We, th- we then can we then look at like how we protect areas of natural green beauty or intensify brownfield. That's what it requires. There are transport nodes in and around Heath Road, for example. You know, you've got the M4, you've got M25, which is very close to the M1, the M3, and, and the rest of the country. It's protected green belt. And that's of no ecological value because it's it's awful land. Who's going to want wants it there? Why can't we release that for industrial capacity? Because then it then is able to move in and around the country quite quickly or internationally if we need to. It then releases pressure on boroughs like mine to protect some of the industrial land and use that for housing or increasing green space if necessary within the centre of an urban area. So I genuinely think there needs to be a conversation around how we use land in this country. And we haven't had that 
since the 60s. And I just think it's, it's, we can't avoid that. And I'm glad that we are, as a party, we're genuinely now talking about what we would release and what we would protect. It's far less glamorous, but the shortage of industrial land, the crisis in London is even more acute than the, the housing crisis when it comes to fighting for space. I'll, I'll tell you something now. The industrial value is now exceeding residential value. So we are now having schemes. There was a scheme Brent that had permission for 400 homes. They've now come back to us to have a, to, not to rescind the planning permission, but to come back and say, we want light industrial, four-story stack light industrial, because actually that's going to have better returns for them because the, the need for industrial is so great. There's a massive need for affordable workspace because the way people are working is changing. So people want more local office space or kind of, you know, renting a computer for a few hours space. There isn't a conversation about what we're having about how we, how the built environment supports SMEs, for example. And in London, we need every, 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 everything to be firing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really harming London's growth, the housing crisis and the crisis in commercial space and in industrial space as well. And because it is so hard to redevelop our low-rise terracing like we were looking and parts of outer outer Lewisham which is kind of semi-detached properties with large gardens with garages behind making it easier to kind of infill those garage spaces that are kind of often relatively unoccupied that's still pretty small fry so when we do have a large strategic piece of land in a city centre Catford is mainly kind of large outdoor retail kind of space low rise perfect to build tall and actually if we're going to reach our housing targets we will need to build tall and i'd often trying to explain that actually densifying our suburbs is really really difficult like, there are some interesting ideas with street votes in a way to potentially bring this about that no one is going to be able to click their fingers and turn London into Barcelona or Paris. We're not going to be able to build that mid-rise. The gentle density, yeah. Gentle density across the board. It's just not how it will work. It's not how the system is geared to work. So we are going to be a city of terracing and towers. And that's our flavour. That's what London will look like. But it means accepting that towers are going to happen. And they're having a conversation about, you know, with as the local politicians and as kind of national politicians representing the, the city explaining why they're needed the green belt ah yeah totally agree yeah and it's <laughs> like i'd love to see london become a city of density because then you wouldn't have as much need for towers but um and i think that there's an element to it i think the other frustrate i think what residents also find incredibly frustrating and this is coincided with austerity is that Local government has seen the most swinging cuts of all public services, but never really talked about in the same way that the NHS or education is talked about in terms of cuts to local government. And you know, we made the political decision where we protected our care services, so you know, adult social care, children services, because you know they are the most they had the biggest need. And you know, in Brent, four thousand over four thousand residents take up nearly half the council budget on care services. But that has consequences elsewhere, where you have to have We've had to cut the environment budget, and I'm sure they've had that in Lewisham. And you're, you know, people feel that the streets aren't cleaner, your potholes aren't being fixed, your payments not being done, and then they're seeing all these blocks and regeneration, and they're not seeing, well, you're, you know, all this capital tax you must be getting from all this. And then when you try and explain to people, actually, as much as you know, there's been so much new development that's raised twelve million pounds, but Brent has lost nearly two hundred million from his annual budget in the last ten years. So there's going to be a shortfall. And I think if people felt that the impact of the public realm was looked after, be, you know, in a, because, and, and we, they wouldn't, they, there wouldn't be as much kickback, I suppose, on, on development because they're feeling that their area is still looked after, you know, and that's, that's something else I think the party are going to have to tackle is how we find local government and, and making sure that people feel that the local area is where they want it to be and not having... This conversation oh, everyone's going downhill everything's terrible 
it's hard to make having conversations with residents when they said when you say to them the deficit in the fixing our potholes in Brent is in the tune of a hundred million pounds. You know, if we fixed every de- and resurfaced every road, we just don't have that money to do that. But they're all they're only seeing that what is in front of them. Or if we you know had every street corner had a bin that had was collected every other day. You know, it people. I think particularly in the suburbs because the north of Brent is very much suburbia metro land. You know. 19, 1950s, 60s, 30s, semis, you know, like three bed semis with a garden and, 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 and so on. And I think there's a feeling of it used to be so nice. And and all those things, we, you're building too many flats. I'm like, well, we have a housing need, we need housing. But you're not, you can't look after the streets. And that's, that's some of the tension that you get. It must be um, must be challenging because I often try to explain that actually these developments will bring investment, bring bring monies in, but actually it'll be good for our local economy. Be more people living locally, using local services, keeping the money flowing in the local economy. But a lot of the arguments, essentially, nearly all the arguments for tackling the housing crisis, are very, very kind of abstract. When the arguments that stopping an ugly thing next to your house they're so direct and it's so visceral the most difficult thing i had to deal with and i never felt like i found the words to make the argument was when confronting residents about the need for no social housing the new council housing and i was up against people who were basically nimby saying please not in my backyard yes i do want new council housing but not near me or not here and i would talk about the impact of the housing crisis what i'd see in my advice surgery the stories i'd hear explaining what your average temporary accommodation looks like and how long families are are staying in bed and breakfast when i did that when i kind of appealed and i pulled the heartstrings it never went down very well and people's backs up and they said are you suggesting i don't care about homeless families and i realized that i couldn't go down that route and it just didn't work no like i struggled to often make the case for housing and you were someone with a much bigger platform than than i ever had in local government how do you make a case for housing and how do you deal with the pushback um so i mean i suppose challenge it was sort of change a little bit so i had that same conversation when i said to people well we're choosing to target our resources on adult social care or children's social services and they go well my child doesn't need children's services so why do why does my account tax go there and and i and i turn around up and say well your child is very lucky not all not all children have that but i suppose when it comes to housing well, I, I I try to I try to relate it to the fact that actually we have I say look my job is to think about the future and to think about the next 30 40 years and I relate I make it very I make it very personal to me and so I I, I use my daughter as an example I said my daughter by virtue of the fact that she comes from a family that we have housing security will never need social housing touch wood but I want her to be able to say that she can buy or rent in Brent. And at the moment, that's not possible because we don't have enough housing. And I want her to be able to choose where she works. If she wants to work in the center of London, then I want her to be able to do that. And I relay that on an individual basis on the doorstep, literally to, to, to people saying, well, have you not got members of your family that, you know, or your own children that you have these aspirations for? Because right now, Whilst you were able to buy your house for four times or three times it, it, your your wage, right now, if your eighteen year old or twenty year old went to buy a mortgage, went to get a mortgage, it's six seven times at least their salary, mm-hmm. and that's and it needs two people. That happened when you bought your house. One of you could be not working and you still be able to get the mortgage, and you related to that 
personal situation. And for most people, they get it. And there'll be those who don't won't understand it or, or refuse to understand it because they don't want the areas to change. And that, that's up to them. But most people, when you put it down to that level of, or how will this impact your child, your family, and you, and how things have changed? They they get it, you know. And and I often say, look, you know, you and I are going to disagree about tower blocks, or you and I are going to disagree about how much density there is. But I will never shy away from saying to them, well, I'm doing this because I want my daughter to be able to afford on her own to be able to rent or buy in rent, and I want that for your families too. And they get it. And and with currently particularly now with, with following the trust government and mortgage rates and interest rates and inflation, little people are more, more and more attuned to how difficult getting mortgages are. And so having that conversation that actually the only way to make things affordable is around supply is getting easier. Yeah. No, I do feel like the, the debate is changing and the debate is getting better. I think it has, it's needed political leadership and the debate a couple of days ago in Parliament, yes, there were some oh, very usual suspects with a nimbyish comments. Immigration thought, apparently. Yeah, and and just kind of economic illiteracy, and yeah, and, and those sort of comments as well. But actually, there was some really cross-party work and speeches that were saying, no, this is an issue of lack of supply, and making that case, and this is how we this is how we actually solve it, which was really positive but it takes political leadership and I guess my final question to you would be you've shown political leadership on this when it was quite unfashionable <laughs> the massively pro-housing even in inner London it was I'm pro-housing but and it was always caveated and it was always we want to see more affordable housing and you've been saying no we want to see all tenures we want to see social housing affordable housing market housing and this is how we solve the housing crisis because it's fundamentally an issue of lack of supply from your experience showing that leadership has it been has it been difficult has there been backlash or can you just take it um okay so where i get a little bit personal um in terms of my own situation, I it is it is hard. I was talking about this seven eight years ago when no one wanted to talk about anything other than council housing, and I of I am of the mind. And my personal motivation on this is that I will take the hit over and over again. I, I've I've been through difficult back turn things in my in my life when my husband passed away seven years ago. I can take here. I'm I'm resilient, and my over overarching thing. Right, this is me probably as a teacher as well. Is that I've seen too many kids and too many young people who are phenomenally talented, who are, you know, doing everything they're supposed to do with their careers, their jobs, their lives, and yet they are still being impeded by generations above because the generations above don't want to change things. They don't want to be changed, and. So long as there are, young, there are young people, and my daughter's included in this, who having, you know, part of being a Labour Party member is tackling inequality. And generational inequality is something that we don't talk about enough. The baby boomers, you know, and, and I appreciate there'll be scales of difference within, within each cohort, have had the best of the welfare state, they've had the best of the public services. If you're an 18-year-old, 30-year-old today, you are heavily in debt with student loans. You are never going to be able to buy anywhere. Jobs are like, you know, transport costs are insane. People are putting off having children because they can't afford housing. How have we got to that point? I am secure. I've got housing security. I am okay. So long as there are people who don't have that, it is my job in this role to keep fighting and advocating for them. And if I don't do that, that's me negating or ab absolving my responsibility as an elected representative, as a community leader, as a cabinet member. And I will have that conversation with with party members, with fellow councillors, with residents, with voters, with our shadow team, with ministers, because if if nothing else, 
if we're not tackling inequality as a Labour Party, what are we here for? Mm. And that is that is fundamental to kind of my value system. You know, we can tackle the the other charges of inequality around race, religion, you know, kind of poverty, but generational inequality is an actual scandal that we have to address. And housing is central to that. Housing is central to everyone's life chances. I find it incredibly frustrating when you have people who have mortgages that are paid off and are very, and I'm, I'm probably stereotyping a little bit here and generalizing, on often a public sector, a decent public sector pension. And they pay their mortgage off and then they're campaigning against housing. And actually, that's not fair. That's that's inequality. And so I just think it's a moral imperative and I will take scars. I've got plenty of bruises. I've got plenty of scars for, for taking the position I have. Um, you know, even within my own group, they're like, well, why can't you be more about council housing? And I said, well, I am. That That's a given. I'm a Labour Party politician. I will always advocate for council housing. I am also a Labour Party politician that believe in aspiration and enabling our young people to have life chances. And the other, the best way of doing that is tackling the housing crisis. Um, we can provide every job possible. If people can't live near the job, what's the point? So, yeah, it, it is tough. And particularly being a woman in this field, there aren't, I mean, there are people speaking in this field, predominantly men. And I suppose being a woman of an ethnic minority, I'm, I'm, I'm Indian majority Indian, there aren't, I think, you know, there aren't very many of us uh, speaking on this field and I, I will continue to do so. Thank you, thank you for continuing to do so. And I completely understand what you're saying. I, it was uh, completely, my experience of local government was completely eye-opening in me realising how much privilege I have as a well-spoken white man, I would enter a room with a much more senior colleague who's much more knowledgeable than me on the subject we're talking about. Everyone would go, first questions would come to me. Anyway, and it would just, and and even the hostility would have a slightly different flavor. There would still be a kind of, particularly from, particularly to men in the crowd, kind of mutual respect. I often get people both, I've had remarks said to me, oh, wait, you know your stuff? I'm like, yes, I do know my stuff. Like, no. yeah. You know, and, and I'm, yeah. five foot, I, I'm five foot two and I have very sharp elbows. I will make sure that I will be heard in a room, particularly on this issue. Um, and now I can, and you know, now I've been doing it for seven and a half years, um, well, nearly eight years, actually, that I have authority and I have a record to stand by and say, actually, show me, show me that you've done better. Because right now you don't and you can't, so therefore I am the authority of that, of that view or that uh, experience, you know, that others in this room. So it's interesting that when I first took the role, I used to be very intimidated, you know, the kind of the imposter syndrome, which often women particularly ha uh, kind of experience, is that it took me a while, a year or so, to realize that people actually wanted to have my favor, if that's the right way of putting it. Um, developers who are in these multinational developers and all, you know, kind of multi-billion companies wanted me to like what they were doing. And so they, and then when I realized that, I thought, oh, I have authority and influence here in a way that most people don't, you know, I will never be a millionaire, but these people want my okay and, um, or my, my permission or my support or something. And therefore I, I need to use that as leverage to get what I need for my borrower. I think your political leadership is, is so important because I speak to loads of councillors will say to me, come to me for advice with dealing with opposition and dealing with NIMBYs and they'll they'll say, well, they keep throwing out, um, what about empty homes? And I'm not quite sure. And we'll have a chat and they'll actually, they will themselves know that the proportion of empty homes is absolutely tiny and they might not be familiar with uh, specific details that if we, you know, 300,000 empty homes and across the country and if we filled every single one, it'd be one year's housing supply and it would mean moving families. And they would know that that would mean moving families to Burnley from, from South London and destroying their whole networks. They, and the councillors I'm talking to know this and they know that actually they can respond they know what's to come back to that that frequent line that's kind of thrown out away often they lack confidence in 
having those kind of difficult conversations with residents and having someone like yourselves being able to kind of say this is how you tackle this these are the arguments it's really important and that leadership gives others confidence as well which i think is really important it is a huge thing about confidence people councillors particularly if they're new in, in, in a ward or it's a marginal borough or a marginal ward it makes people nervous and i think giving political cover as the senior leader in that in authority is important arming them with lines about what the issues are is really important and also giving them the confidence to say actually some people you will present your case and if they're still not accepting you just gotta leave it with them and, and let them reconcile what they're saying and, and nine times out of ten once the plan commission has been given and a bit of noise has died down and the development starts building unless there's issues around the actual construction phase of it most people forget that they end up like well okay well it's been built it's done you know and actually some of the genuine mitigations around, you know, parking or whatever, you can resolve. You know, I've said to them, if, if, if these residents have issues, have issues about parking and they're worried, we can secure um, CPZs, for example, in an area if they've got big development and they're worried about parking on their own street. You know, we, and we've done that. I know, I know we've been talking for so, so long and I've, I know I should wrap up, but I would love to, outside of this podcast, pick your brains on how do we, how do we give politicians around the country the tools to make the case for housing because so many politicians do but sometimes they just lack the confidence to to be public about their support i think there's there's two things there needs to have a national conversation and there needs to be something at westminster that's done about this um in terms of saying this is what we need to do strategically in the same way that we have conversations around jobs and the green economy it needs to be a very clear line that you know it's a climate emergency this is the green economy this is housing and you know in kids for example on, on, on in labor price stuff housing should be a thread and i know people have been like oh housing's not on their five pledges well actually housing should be a thread in all five it should help us tackle all five missions not you know not, not be one explicitly on its own my personal view is there needs to be a ministry of housing and infrastructure together we had that pre-2010 and i think that will alleviate some of the concerns residents have about infrastructure, which is what often I get is we haven't got enough this or that. Well, actually, if you have a ministry that's strategically looking at it by region or nationally, it then it and then you empower and give the ministry teeth to to force those public sector bodies to deliver the infrastructure, whether it's health, whether it's education, whether it's transport, whether it's you know I mean data and IT, you know all all those kind of things that you need. Um, uh, sorry, uh, broadband and, and Wi-Fi. Um, enable that to happen so then you're taking away some of the kind of natural or genuine concerns around mit- mitigation and, and then making sure that your planning process enables communities to be felt to be to be heard but also making it very clear that if it's a site allocation there will be housing but what the housing looks like what the mitigations are that can be what has changed I think that's what gives people confidence, and, and uh, this is what I do to my to my backbenchers. There's one scheme that two of my backbenchers are really worried about, and I said, "Look, the local plan is going to get housing, but if your residents are worried about something specifically, formally write to to me or the planning uh, head of planning, and then we can say we can lodge that log that as uh, something in the report that you can point to, saying that you raise this as a concern because residents have raised it with you, but we will seek mitigations on it." That totally makes sense. You you want to. Because as a backbench councillor, sometimes it can be a bit daunting that you are kind of just left floating, going out with emails, and sometimes it's not so clear what you can do. But there are ways for you to have your voice heard and find a balance with residents so it doesn't become us for them. So let's work together. And let's work together early on in the process rather than have a a pitched battle at a planning committee, which is, which is never done. But Shara, thank you um, so much for coming to chat to me. I hope. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed speaking to you, and, and it, it's an important topic. And I'm, yeah, more conversations are important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hope we get some listeners who eyes are kind of opened about the extent of the housing crisis, and and those who are educated on on the planning system and why it can be so frustrating um, if you ever engage in it. And also, we also hopefully get some politicians who listen to it. And, uh, learn a thing or two but yeah thank you so much for coming on and hope uh, you can now go out and enjoy the sunshine 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and get additional content like bonus episodes and show notes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. That's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. If you want to find out more about Sharma and what she's getting up to, you can check her out on Twitter at Sharma Tatler. That's at Sharma Tatler. And if you want to find out more about Leo and what he's up to, make sure to check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thanks once again for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.